section thirty three of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter fourteen free trade and the league part two mr bright himself has given an interesting account of his first meeting with mr cobden the first time i became acquainted with mr cobden was in connection with the great question of education i went over to manchester to call upon him and invite him to come to rochdale to speak at a meeting about to be held in the schoolroom of the baptist chapel in west street i found him in his counting-house i told him what i wanted his countenance lighted up with pleasure to find that others were working in the same cause he without hesitation agreed to come he came and he spoke and though he was then so young a speaker yet the qualities of his speech were such as remained with him so long as he was able to speak at all clearness logic a conversational eloquence a persuasiveness which when combined with the absolute truth there was in his eye and in his countenance became a power it was almost impossible to resist still more remarkable is the description mr bright has given of cobden's first appeal to him to join in the agitation for the repeal of the corn laws i was in leamington and mr cobden called on me i was then in the depths of grief i may almost say of despair for the light and sunshine of my house had been extinguished all that was left on earth of my young wife except the memory of a sainted life and a too brief happiness was lying still and cold in the chamber above us mr cobden called on me as his friend and addressed me as you may suppose with words of condolence after a time he looked up and said there are thousands and thousands of homes in england at this moment where wives and mothers and children are dying of hunger now when the first paroxysm of your grief is past i would advise you to come with me and we will never rest until the corn laws are repealed the invitation thus given was cordially accepted and from that time dates the almost unique fellowship of these two men who worked together in the closest brotherhood who loved each other as not all brothers do who were associated so closely in the public mind that until cobden's death the name of one was scarcely ever mentioned without that of the other there was something positively romantic about their mutual attachment each led a noble life and each was in his own way a man of genius each was simple and strong rivalry between them would have been impossible although they were every day being compared and contrasted by both friendly and unfriendly critics their gifts were admirably suited to make them powerful allies each had something that the other wanted bright had not cobden's winning persuasiveness nor his surprising ease and force of argument but cobden had not anything like his companion's oratorical power he had not the tones of scorn of pathos of humour and of passion the two together made a genuine power in the house of commons and on the platform mr kinglake who is as little in sympathy with the general political opinions of cobden and bright as any man could well be has borne admirable testimony to their argumentative power and to their influence over the house of commons these two orators had shown with what a strength with what a masterly skill with what patience 
with what a high courage they could carry a scientific truth through the storms of politics they had shown that they could arouse and govern the assenting thousands who listened to them with delight that they could bend the house of commons that they could press their creed upon a prime minister and put upon his mind so hard a stress that after a while he felt it to be a torture and a violence to his reason to have to make a stand against them nay more each of these gifted men had proved that he could go bravely into the midst of angry opponents could show them their fallacies one by one destroy their favourite theories before their very faces and triumphantly argue them down it was indeed a scientific truth which in the first instance cobden and bright undertook to force upon the recognition of a parliament composed in great measure of the very men who were taught to believe that their own personal and class interests were bound up with the maintenance of the existing economical creed those who hold that because it was a scientific truth the task of its advocates ought to have been easy will do well to observe the success of the resistance which has been thus far offered to it in almost every country but england alone these men had many assistants and lieutenants well worthy to act with them and under them mr w j fox for instance a unitarian minister of great popularity and remarkable eloquence seemed at one time about to divide public admiration as an orator between mr cobden and mr bright mr milner gibson who had been a tory went over to the movement and gave it the assistance of a trained parliamentary knowledge and a very considerable debating skill in the lancashire towns the league had the advantage of being officered for the most part by shrewd and sound men of business who gave their time as freely as they gave their money to the advancement of the cause it is curious to compare the manner in which the anti-corn law agitation was conducted with the manner in which the contemporary agitation in ireland for repeal of the union was carried on in england the agitation was based on the most strictly business principles the leaders spoke and acted as if the league itself were some great commercial firm which was bound above all things to fulfil its promises and keep to the letter as well as the spirit of its engagements there was no boasting there was no exaggeration there were no appeals to passion no romantic rousings of sentimental emotion the system of the agitation was as clear straightforward and businesslike as its purpose in ireland there were monster meetings with all manner of dramatic and theatric effects with rhetorical exaggeration and vehement appeal to passion and to ancient memory of suffering the cause was kept up from day to day by assurances of near success so positive that it is sometimes hard to believe those who made them could themselves have been deceived by them no doubt the differences will be described by many as the mere result of the difference between one cause and the other between the agitation for free trade clear tangible and practical and that for repeal of the union with its shadowy object and its visionary impulses but a better explanation of the differences will be found in the different natures to which an appeal had to be made it is not by any means certain that o'connell's cause was a mere shadow nor will it appear if we study the criticism of the time that the guides of public opinion who pronounced the repeal agitation absurd and ludicrous 
had any better words at first for the movement against the corn laws cobden and bright on the one side o'connell on the other knew the audiences they had to address it would have been impossible to stir the blood of the lancashire artisans by means of the appeals which went to the heart of the dreamy sentimental impassioned celt of the south of ireland the munster peasant would have understood little of such clear penetrating business-like argument as that by which cobden and bright enforced their doctrines had o'connell's cause been as practical and its success been as immediately attainable as that of the anti-corn law league the great irish agitator would still have had to address his followers in a different tone of appeal all men are not alike says the norman butler to the flemish soldier in scott's betrothed that which will but warm your flemish hearts will put wildfire into norman brains and what may only encourage your countrymen to man the walls will make ours fly over the battlements the most impassioned celt however will admit that in the anti-corn law movement of cobden and bright with its rigid truthfulness and its strict proportion between capacity and promise there was an entirely new dignity lent to popular agitation which raised it to the condition of statesmanship in the rough the reform agitation in england had not been conducted without some exaggeration much appeal to passion and some not by any means indistinct allusion to the reserve of popular force which might be called into action if legislators and peers proved insensible to argument the era of the anti-corn law movement was a new epoch altogether in english political controversy the league however successful as it might be throughout the country had its great work to do in parliament the free trade leaders must have found their hearts sink within them when they came sometimes to confront the fortress of traditions and of vested rights even after the change made in favour of manufacturing and middle-class interests by the reform bill the house of commons was still composed as to nine-tenths of its whole number by representatives of the landlords the entire house of lords then was constituted of the owners of land all tradition all prestige all the dignity of aristocratic institutions seemed to be naturally arrayed against the new movement conducted as it was by manufacturers and traders for the benefit seemingly of trade and those whom it employed the artisan population who might have been formidable as a disturbing element were on the whole rather against the free traders than for them nearly all the great official leaders had to be converted to the doctrines of free trade many of the whigs were willing enough to admit the case of free trade as the young scotch lady mentioned by sydney smith admitted the case of love in the abstract but they could not recognize the possibility of applying it in the complicated financial conditions of an artificial system like ours some of the whigs were in favour of a fixed duty in place of the existing sliding scale the leaders of the movement had indeed to resist a very dangerous temptation coming from statesmen who professed to be in accordance with them as to the mere principle of protection but who were always endeavouring to persuade them that they had better accept any decent compromise and not push their demands to extremes the witty peer who in a former generation answered an advocate of moderate reform by asking him what he thought of moderate chastity might have had many opportunities if he had been engaged in the free trade movement of turning his epigram to account mr macaulay for instance wrote to the electors of edinburgh 
to remonstrate with them on what he considered their fanatical and uncompromising adherence to the principle of free trade in my opinion mr macaulay wrote to his constituents you are all wrong not because you think all protection bad for i think so too not even because you avow your opinion and attempt to propagate it for i have always done the same and shall do the same but because being in a situation where your only hope is in a compromise you refuse to hear of compromise because being in a situation where every person who will go a step with you on the right road ought to be cordially welcomed you drive from you those who are willing and desirous to go with you halfway to this policy i will be no party i will not abandon those with whom i have hitherto acted and without whose help i am confident that no great improvement can be effected for an object purely selfish it had not occurred to mr macaulay that any party but the whigs could bring in any measure of fiscal or other reform worth the having and indeed he probably thought it would be something like an act of ingratitude amounting to a species of sacrilege to accept reform from any hands but those of its recognized whig patrons the anti-corn law agitation introduced a game of politics into england which astonished and considerably discomfited steady-going politicians like macaulay the league men did not profess to be bound by any indefeasible bond of allegiance to the whig party they were prepared to cooperate with any party whatever which would undertake to abolish the corn laws their agitation would have done some good in this way if in no other sense it introduced a more robust and independent spirit into political life it is almost ludicrous sometimes to read the diatribes of supporters of lord melbourne's government for example against any one who should presume to think that any object in the mind of a true patriot or at least of a true liberal could equal in importance that of keeping the melbourne ministry in power great reforms have been made by conservative governments in our own days because the new political temper which was growing up in england refused to affirm that the patent of reform rested in the possession of any particular party that if holders of the monopoly did not find it convenient or were not in the humour to use it any further just then no one else must venture to interfere in the matter or to undertake the duty which they had declined to perform at the time that macaulay wrote his letter however it had not entered into the mind of any whig to believe it possible that the repeal of the corn laws was to be the work of a great conservative minister done at the bidding of two radical politicians it is a significant fact that the anti-corn law league were not in the least discouraged by the accession of sir robert peel to power to them the fixed duty proposed by lord john russell was as objectionable as peel's sliding scale their hopes seem rather to have gone up than gone down when the minister came into power whose adherents unlike those of lord john russell were absolutely against the very principle of free trade it is of some importance in estimating the morality of the course pursued by peel to observe the opinion formed of his professions and his probable purposes by the shrewd men who led the anti-corn law league the grand charge against peel is that he betrayed his party that he induced them to continue their allegiance to him on the promise 
that he would never concede the principle of free trade and that he used his power to establish free trade when the time came to choose between it and a surrender of office now it is certain that the league always regarded sir robert peel as a free trader in heart as one who fully admitted the principle of free trade but who did not see his way just then to deprive the agricultural interest of the protection on which they had for so many years been allowed and encouraged to lean in the debate after the general election of eighteen forty one the debate which turned out the melbourne ministry mr cobden then for the first time a member of the house of commons said i am a free trader i call myself neither whig nor tory i am proud to acknowledge the virtue of the whig ministry in coming out from the ranks of the monopolists and advancing three parts out of four in my own direction yet if the right honourable baronet opposite sir robert peel advances one step further i will be the first to meet him halfway and shake hands with him some years later mr cobden said at birmingham there can be no doubt that sir robert peel is at heart as good a free trader as i am he is told us so in the house of commons again and again nor do i doubt that sir robert peel has in his inmost heart the desire to be the man who shall carry out the principles of free trade in this country sir robert peel had indeed as mr cobden said again and again in parliament expressed his conviction as to the general truth of the principles of free trade in eighteen forty two he declared it to be utterly beyond the power of parliament and a mere delusion to say that by any duty fixed or otherwise a certain price could be guaranteed to the producer in the same year he expressed his belief that on the general principle of free trade there is now no great difference of opinion and that all agree in the general rule that we should buy in the cheapest and sell in the dearest market this expression of opinion called forth an ironical cheer from the benches of opposition peel knew well what the cheer was meant to convey he knew it meant to ask him why then he did not allow the country to buy its grain in the cheapest market he promptly added i know the meaning of that cheer i do not wish to raise a discussion on the corn laws or the sugar duties which i contend however are exceptions to the general rule and i will not go into that question now the press of the day whether for or against peel commented upon his declarations and his measures as indicating clearly that the bent of his mind was toward free trade even in grain at any events he had reached that mental condition when he regarded the case of grain like that of sugar as a necessary exception for the time to the operation of a general rule it ought to have been obvious that if exceptional circumstances should arise pulling more strongly in the direction of the league sir robert peel's own explicit declarations must bind him to recognize the necessity of applying the free trade principles even to corn sir robert peel says his cousin sir lawrence peel in a sketch of the life and character of the great statesman had been as i have said always a free trader the questions to which he had declined to apply these principles had been viewed by him as exceptional the corn law had been so treated by many able exponents of the principles of free trade sir robert peel himself has left it on record that during the discussions on the corn law of eighteen forty two he was more than once pressed to give a guarantee so far as a minister could give it 
that the amount of protection established by that law should be permanently adhered to but although i did not then contemplate the necessity for further change i uniformly refused to fetter the discretion of the government by any such assurances as those that were required of me it is evident that the condition of sir robert peel's opinions were even as far back as eighteen forty two something very different indeed from that of the ordinary county member or pledged protectionist and that peel had done all he could to make this clear to his party a minister who in eighteen forty two refused to fetter the discretion of his government in dealing with the protection of home-grown grain ought not on the face of things to be accused of violating his pledges and betraying his party if four years later under the pressure of extraordinary circumstances he made up his mind to the abolition of such a protection let us test this in a manner which will be familiar to our own time suppose a prime minister is pressed by some of his own party to give the house of commons a guarantee so far as a minister could give it that the principle of the state church establishment in england shall be permanently adhered to he declines to fetter the discretion of the government in the future is it not evident that such an answer would be taken by nine out of ten of his listeners to be ominous of some change to the established church if four years after the same minister were to propose to disestablish the church he might be denounced and he might even be execrated but no one could fairly accuse him of having violated his pledge and betrayed his party the country party however did not understand sir robert peel as their opponents and his assuredly understood him they did not at this time believe in the possibility of any change free trade was to them little more than an abstraction they did not much care who preached it out of parliament they were convinced that the state of things they saw around them when they were boys would continue to the end they looked on mr villiers and his annual motion in favour of free trade very much as a stout old tory of later times might regard the annual motion for woman suffrage both parties in the house that is to say both of the parties from whom ministers were taken alike set themselves against the introduction of any such measure the supporters of it were with one exception not men of family and rank it was agitated for a good deal out of doors but agitation had not up to that time succeeded in making much way even with a reformed parliament the country party observed that some men among the two leading sets went farther in favour of the abstract principle than others but it did not seem to them that that really affected the practical question very much in eighteen forty two mr disraeli himself was one of those who stood up for the free trade principle and insisted that it had been rather the inherited principle of the conservatives than of the whigs country gentlemen did not therefore greatly concern themselves about the practical work doing in manchester or the professions of abstract opinion so often made in parliament they did not see that the mind of their leader was avowedly in a progressive condition on the subject of free trade because they could not bring themselves to question for a moment the principle of protection for home-grown grain they made up their minds that it was a principle as sacred with him against that conviction no evidence could prevail it was with them a point of conscience and honour it would have seemed an insult to their leader to believe even his own words if these seemed to say that it was a mere question of expediency 
convenience and time with him perhaps it would have been better if sir robert peel had devoted himself more directly to what mr disraeli afterwards called educating his party perhaps if he had made it part of his duty as a leader to prepare the minds of his followers for the fact that protection for grain having ceased to be tenable as an economic principle would possibly some day have to be given up as a practice he might have taken his party along with him he might have been able to show them as the events have shown them since that the introduction of free corn would be a blessing to the population of england in general and would do nothing but good for the landed interest as well the influence of peel at that time and indeed all through his administration up to the introduction of his free trade measures was limitless so far as his party were concerned he could have done anything with them indeed we find no evidence so clear to prove that peel had not in eighteen forty two made up his mind to the introduction of free trade as the fact that he did not at once begin to educate his party to it this is to be regretted the measure might have been passed by common accord there is something not altogether without pathetic influence in the thought of that country party whom peel had led so long and who adored him so thoroughly turning away from him and against him and mournfully seeking another leader there is something pathetic in the thought that rightly or wrongly they should have believed themselves betrayed by their chief but peel to begin with was a reserved cold and somewhat awkward man he was not effusive he did not pour out his emotions and reveal all his changes of opinion and bursts of confidence even to his habitual associates he brooded over these things in his own mind he gave such expression to them in open debate as any passing occasion seemed strictly to call for and he assumed perhaps that the gradual changes operating in his views when thus expressed were understood by his followers above all it is probable that peel himself did not see until almost the last moment that the time had actually come when the principle of protection must give way to other and more weighty claims in his speech announcing his intended legislation in eighteen forty six sir robert peel with a proud frankness which was characteristic of him denied that his altered course of action was due exclusively to the failure of the potato crop and the dread of famine in ireland i will not he said withhold the homage which is due to the progress of reason and of truth by denying that my opinions on the subject of protection have undergone a change and i will not direct the course of the vessel by observations taken in eighteen forty two but it is probable that if the irish famine had not threatened the moment for introducing the new legislation might have been indefinitely postponed the prospects of the anti-corn law league did not look by any means bright when the session preceding the introduction of the free trade legislation came to an end the number of votes that the league could count on in parliament did not much exceed that which the advocates of home rule have been able to reckon up in our day nothing in eighteen forty three or in the earlier part of eighteen forty five pointed to any immediate necessity for sir robert peel's testing the progress of his own convictions by reducing them into the shape of practical action it is therefore not hard to understand how even a far-seeing and conscientious statesman 
busy with the practical work of each day might have put off taking definite counsel with himself as to the introduction of measures for which just then there seemed no special necessity and which could hardly be introduced without bitter controversy End of section thirty three